for anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you were working, let's say over 60 hours a week, maybe 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, and you believe that what you need is leads, you are a confused individual. Welcome to the Tip the Scales podcast, where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of LawRank, and today I am live at his studio, actually, with the one and only Michael Mogul. We talked about longevity. We talked about the Crisp Summit, the one that was $8 million last year and the one coming up this year. We talked about haters. We talked about working with your spouse. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Michael Mogul, the infamous. It's an honor. I know you have your podcast and it's a great podcast, but I, I really want to get to know you a little bit better because the other day you said something to me that I was like, I need to learn more about this. And it's this whole longevity obsession that you have. Can you tell me about this? We're in our 11th year of CRISP. I would say the first 10, certainly the first eight were seven days a week, you know, Saturday and Sunday, 80 hour weeks, just, you know, you're working hard, you're working smart, but you're also working at a point where, at least in my case, I was exercising, but I wasn't what I would consider very healthy. Like if, if you know, I ran blood labs at the end of, uh, at the end of last year, at the end of 2022, I didn't look horrible, but my labs were just horrible. If they did this test where they said, well, what's your true age? So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm 37. I think my true age was like five years later. Like it was in the, it was in the 40s. Specifically like, in what, if you don't mind? I mean, everything. Uh, let's see. So certainly in terms of cortisol levels, insulin resistance, probably 10, 12 different markers that were off track. And then again, you're basing this off of what is considered normal. Not a good. This is not a good thing yeah. because every year they reevaluate normal and whatever is considered normal now would be considered obese years ago. The bell curve has kind of shifted. I struggle with moderation. So at first I said, okay, I wanna get all this dialed in, like my health, like not just health, you know, exercise and sleep, but also nutrition. And then I build this whole health team around me. And again, this is, we're gonna have, I'm sure a lot of people listening to say, it must be nice. Um, it, but and I'm sure it is. I agree. And I'm a big fan of like accountability. And I think that there's um, people who ask for advice and there's people who pay for help. I'm a big fan of paying for help because I think that that leads to better outcomes. So I, you know, I got a trainer, I got a chef, I have this longevity doctor that I work with because I knew that I wanted to build this team that would help me achieve these goals. Like, I mean, of course I'd have to do it all, but I wanted to have the right experts in my corner. I get into the science of it. I go from like listening to Andrew Huberman and Peter Atia. So I, I get obsessed. Why was I doing this? Well, number one, there's kind of a difference between like health span and lifespan. Lifespan's how long you live. Health is kind of the life in your years. And we're going to be living longer. You know, I think this is an amazing time to be alive. I'm really excited about like what's coming in the years ahead. Then the other side of this is your ability to make good decisions and making the right decisions probably has the greatest expectation exponential impact of anything that you could possibly do. But if you're not optimizing for your health, which is not just the way you look, it's not like just having a six pack on the beach. It's really, do you have mental clarity? Do you have focus? Can you operate well within stress? I mean, can you make the right decisions when you're thinking like second order and third order and years ahead? So I looked at that and said, well, if I can be healthier physically and mentally, I can make better decisions in the business. I can be a better leader and then we could have a greater outcome as well. You know, we work with a lot of middle-aged individuals and I see a lot of people that are at a point where like they've hit a point of success, but they've neglected their health. And I kind of see kind of the ghost of Christmas future. I'm like, here's how this goes. How old are you, Michael? 37 now. Okay. I, here's how this usually goes. Like the business gets more successful, they make more money. And as a result, they kind of write off their health saying it's because I'm working so hard and it's somehow okay for me to be failing in this one area because I'm so successful in another, right? The identity becomes um, their business and the entrepreneurial success. 
But when I see that path and you know, being around so many people like this, a lot of really successful, unhealthy people, many of them are having heart attacks earlier. Many of them are just exhausted. The relationship with their family isn't, isn't great. Financially, they're a success, but they're not really a success in all areas of their life. So I saw that and I was like, okay, this is how it goes, right? If I don't do something about this now, if I'm not like proactive about it, because it wasn't like I went full dad bod. It wasn't that I was like overweight. It wasn't that I was obese. Like, it wasn't that. I mean, I was working out two to three days a week. I mean, it wasn't inconsistent by any means. It was just that I wasn't really optimizing for anything. I was going doing the normal stuff. I would either like cycle, or I would do some CrossFit, but body composition wise and, and even like blood labs, those are completely different things from just because you exercise, you get some cardio in, like that doesn't make you healthy, right? Like my diet was a mess. My sleep wasn't great. Um, it, it just, from the outside looking in, you probably couldn't tell, but the labs never lie. And I, I was listening to a podcast earlier this morning where they were talking about like the majority of uh, whether it's it's cancers or cardiovascular disease or any of this stuff, like the body's really good at hiding symptoms. And usually those symptoms don't arise until you're like either like stage two, stage three cancer or where like the, you're like the lining of your arterial wall has already just gotten so bad that now you have a heart attack. Like you can have no symptoms before and then you have heart attack at age 40. So it's like, you don't want to wait to start showing symptoms. But for me, it was just, I wanted to correct it at a time where I was like, well, you know, now is as good as ever. And then I just get obsessed. You know, first of all, it was like the, the three components, which is I think 90% diet and nutrition. The exercise is really there because you want to be able to preserve or increase strength as you get older, because you don't want to, to fall and, and break a hip or, or just get hurt. But right now I'm doing some sort of weight training four days a week. Okay. And these are like compound lifts. Um, my, my trainer's remote. So he just sends me the exercises. And, and I thought that'd be a little weird. I was like, maybe I want somebody in person. But now I realize it's great when I don't have to talk to anybody when I'm, you know, when I'm in the gym and I just listen to podcasts or audiobooks. So I do like four days of that. I also, I do a lot of movement. So he was telling me, hey, just get like 10,000 steps a day. I was like, all right, man, well, I can get 20,000 steps a day. So all the sitting that I was doing around the office, my average steps a day last year was 3,000 steps a day. Now my average is like 23,000. And how did you do that? Walking desk for Zoom meetings. And then I wake up early in the morning. I usually get like two to three miles in for a walk. And then sometimes after our girls go to bed, like in the evening, I'll do another like 30 minutes to an hour. I walk at a pretty brisk pace. I wear like a weighted vest. So I've, I'm not wearing one now. I had, I had an aura ring. Before that, I had a whoop. Uh, I've stopped wearing these just because I had the whoop for three years. Uh, it's not to say I won't come back to it. But when you wake up and you got like a red recovery, you know, even if you feel fine. It fucks with you. It messes with you. Yeah. So I have a rule. I like assess internally first and then I look at it. I'm not perfect in any of this stuff, but I've tried to get better with it, you know, as, as I've been doing it longer. Um, so I'm, big, I'm a big fan of like sleep consistency. Like I go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time. I even extended this to weekends. This is a big one for me. That's the you one know, I can't do. When you can treat weekends, like you can treat the week. It's, it's a hard adjustment initially, like the first week but you will feel great and you don't have to like, even on like Saturday, Sunday, going into Monday, it's no longer an adjustment. You just maintain consistency. It's awesome. And it's easier, I think, to stay to a routine than it's, it is to like do it for a little bit, get off, then get back on it. But then it's like, it becomes this obsessive thing where it's like, I want everything to be like perfect, right? And it's like- Yeah, I mean, it, so you don't want to turn into one of these people that has to do like 15 things before you can get out of the house, right? Of like, oh, I didn't get my cold punch today or I didn't get, you know, my sauna or whatever. I'm not gonna be able to function. I think that's that's a little extreme. Um, and, and also I would say that for a lot of the stuff that's become popularized, I mean, these things are nice, but the main elements are really going to be like sleep, diet, and exercise. And like everything else is just like, maybe makes like maybe a percentage point or two difference. 
What about this whole concept that Huberman has of like getting morning sun? I do it uh, because I'm out when I'm like in the cold plunge. Like I'll do it first thing in the morning. So in, if the sun is not out then, then I'll usually go and like after we drop our girls off at school. And there's also like the grounding, right? You walk around without like shoes or you do like a PM, PMF mat. I don't do grounding. I do the sun because of Huberman. I, like I'm a big fan. When are you going to have him on your podcast? We're working on him. Are Working you really? I, yes. I'm not surprised. I think he's great. I actually really like what he's doing because he's taking what could be complex topics and actually either simplifying them for people or also providing recommendations. But if you look at some of his like routines, I think sometimes people get obsessed with the biohacking stuff in a way that they like try to like, they look at every minute of the day and they think I'm going to do these 15 things. And then it becomes your whole day. You can't do everything he recommends. That's the yeah. thing. If you try to do everything he recommends, like you're not going to have time for anything else. Now let's shift gears. Sure. So Crisp, tell me what's going on. So we started Crisp Ventures, which is essentially in investing in different companies, ways that we could expand our ecosystem. Um, one of the companies that uh, we had invested in early on was a company called Capture Now. It is a law firm. The best way to think about it is it's an interactive voice response. It's like AI, but... Outside of the legal industry, this already this type of technology is pretty common. So if you look at like American Express or Disney, if you ever call any of those phone mm -hmm. numbers, you'll, you'll be talking to like an automated response. You can kind of talk to it and it'll route you appropriately. This really doesn't exist in the legal industry, uh, but Fortune 500 use it all the time. And as we saw, it was cost prohibitive for an individual law firm to develop the technology. We just made it widely available. And really what it exists for is like, initially it was after hours calls, um, nights and weekends where someone would outsource the calls to a call center where they could have inconsistency in their response, where someone might leave a voicemail or not leave a voicemail. This would pick up all of those, handle all of the, the, the intake rather, and then everything besides signing the case transcribe it, pass it through to the CRM. So that's what Capture Now is. We announced that back in November. That has grown like quite a bit since then. Whenever I call like American Express and they have that little AI thing, it frustrates me. So you guys aren't worried about that? It's not really designed to replace the human, right? We're not trying to replace like the, you know, the emotional rapport, the connection. Um, but the reality of it is, is that it, in a best case scenario, if you have a phenomenal intake representative that can work 24 seven, I would say do that. Well, absolutely. That's always going to be better. But most law firms, when you get it to like Saturday at two o'clock in the morning or like, you know, just these, these off hours, like there's not a consistent solution. Or when it's outsourced to a call center, the call centers are answering phones for numerous law firms. They sometimes pronounce the name of the law firm wrong. They're not really vested in the success of that law firm. I think the most important thing is to have a consistent response that does not miss calls, that picks up with the first ring, that is able to pass along all the notes like perfectly, that everything is transcribed, that everything's recorded, that there's auditing in place. I mean, but if you have a human being that can work 24 seven and speaks perfect English and is 100% you know, aligned with your firm and like is motivated, then yeah, that's better. But what we were seeing is that in some cases, a third of the calls coming into a law firm wouldn't even be answered. When someone says, well, yeah, but I don't know if my clients are gonna want AI to pick up, but they want someone to pick up. And what's the cost involved in doing something like that? Yeah, so this one's relatively low cost. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's a few dollars a call. That's, you know, it's a, it's a really simple model. What's actually really cool about AI is that, so a lot of our clients, they, they were saying, well, are you going to offer like Spanish language support? And boom, we just rolled that out, right? Same thing, roll out texting. And like, you can continue to add these features and like multiple language support. Whereas, you know, if someone was talking to like a call center and they're trying to hire staff, they have to hire Spanish speakers and native Spanish speakers versus you can now like through the localization options, just like roll out different, you know, integrations with the AI. And what else is new? So we're about, let's say a little under 40 days out from our, from our conference. So really? 
When yeah. is it? So November 2nd and 3rd. But you're doing the conference different this time, right? So when the event started originally, like this is back in 2018, we did the first conference. Um, our original intent was that this was, would be like a client appreciation event. And we, it became much more than that. I mean, the first conference, I think it was like 500 people. The last conference was 5,000 people. It just kept growing and growing and growing. And this year, more than any year, we wanted to really focus on like our clients, supporting them. We announced last year that this event would be a members only event. So it is a private event, but it's exciting to do that because there's different things that you can do from a public event versus a private event. There's certain speakers we wanted to bring in that you know, weren't comfortable or did not want to speak in a public forum. There's certain levels of the experience, like from the the food that you serve to some of the experiential things that you can do that you can do with a smaller audience. So we're excited to do that. Not to mention, I think, you know, when you do an event in a football stadium, which is the, the last one, it's like, where do you go from there? And we wanted to kind of bring it home. I mean, we'll still have like what looks like right now about 1,500 people. So it's just, it's just clients only. I mean, it's not a small event. But what if someone's not a client and they want to go? They can become a client. So they have to be a client to go to your conference. Yes. Is that really is that really true or Yes, oh 100%. You know, we've discussed like, well, maybe we can make certain tables available for like non-clients if someone can get like uh, you know, a preview of the event, but that's just it's not what we're going to do this year. It also helps us from a content standpoint because in past years, you know, we really have to deal with multiple audiences. We've got the people that already know us, that are kind of familiar with our story, the clients that have been with us, and then people who are seeing us for the first time. So we have to cater content to let's bring all these people up to speed and let's bring this other audience we want to provide them with new content versus at this event, we could just jump right in. Our clients already know us. Many of them have been to previous events. We don't have to tell the origin story. We could just go straight in and make it a very different event. Now, I've noticed that before you guys seem to be more personal injury focused, but now I feel like you guys have clients that are in other practice areas. Yeah. I, I, so I think it's true. I think what happened was generally, as, as you know, personal injury, if you look at just a, a sub-segment generally of the audience is that you tend to see more entrepreneurial law firm owners yeah. that are practicing personal injury, their case values are, are higher. So they're investing more in marketing. So it was kind of a more natural fit when we talked about like kind of the video, the marketing services. Now this has expanded to nearly every single practice area. For us, the criteria is more so, are they entrepreneurial law firm owner? Are they you know, committed to what they're doing? Do they want to grow? Do they want to expand? In our case, it's usually firms that are over a million in revenue. We're not really the zero to one company of like, hey, you just got out of law school. Let's help you like hire your first, you know, your first team member. We're more so like, if there's somewhat of foundation in place, we can help to, to scale that and, and really grow it. We don't do a whole lot with big law. Um, we also don't do a lot with a lot of transactional firms. So that are more of like, let's say like, you know, smaller business law firms. Um, but generally it's, I'd say more the entrepreneurial firm. So a lot of times when I tell a client, hey, you need a video, go to Crisp, get a brand video. They say, well, all Crisp videos look the same. I'm sure you've heard yeah. it. Oh yeah. What's what's your rebuttal to that? My rebuttal is that you have to consider who your audience is too. So I think if a law firm owner is saying that, then I think law firm owners are watching videos of other law firm owners, but it's rare that they're their clients, right? And then like the people in your community aren't watching those videos. So that's that's what I would say. In, in a way, like if somebody's gone and like viewed a number of our videos and they see them for different types of firms and different types of markets, yes, there's certain themes that are fairly consistent. I mean, they're professionally produced. There's some of the slow motion stuff. Sometimes there's a courthouse. I mean, when you have like a certain character arc in, in some of the storytelling, I mean, we've done 
we have 2,000 of these at this point. So it's like, you know, you're going to see certain themes that you, you might be similar from, you know, law firm in one market to a law firm in another market. But the reason why we do them that way is we've seen them be effective. It's what gets engagement. It's what gets somebody to convert. I mean, we track the watch time. We see, kind of see the different elements of a video that are successful. And it's not to say we can't do something completely outside of the box. We've done uh, a number of those videos lately. We have this place in Atlanta. It's called Antico Pizza. I've always tell our team that like we are Antico Pizza. And what it means is like you can go in there and it's this amazing, like authentic Italian place and they've got like five or six items on the menu. And if you like pick the pizza and you're like, oh yeah, but um, can you add like pineapple to it? Or can you add like, you know, this topping or take this topping? They'd be like, no, we are Antico Pizza. If you want to like create your own pizza, then like go to Papa John's or go, go wherever you want. But like, we do these amazing, like, uh, and this place might even get like a Michelin star, but like these, these pizzas are incredible. They like import the dough, they import the water um, straight from Italy. So it's like, if you want a crisp video, this is what it's going to look like. If you want like something, you know, completely different, you want to add like, you know, you want to add some tomatoes and little cucumbers, a little pineapple, whatever it is you want to do it kind of your way, then, you know, hire your cinematographers and do it the way you believe is best. What do we know? We've only done it 2000 times. What is the average watch time on these brand videos? So it'll depend on the video. So most videos are going to be anywhere from like two to three minutes in length. We look for, if, if we're being completely honest, I want someone to watch at least 60% of the video. Like 100 would be nice, but um, you also have to realize that particularly, okay, if it's on their website, you're gonna get a much longer watch time than you would on social media where they're scrolling, right? Sometimes social media, they'll just see a few seconds. So that's what we aim for. I'll also say that if a video is, it's not really even dependent so much on length, like a good video somebody engages with could be five minutes long and they'll watch the majority of that, you know, a short video that's not very engaging, they won't watch any of it, right? So it's it's less about like the length of the video and more about are you telling like an actual engaging arc? Now, the reason why I say like 60% is just the fact that if you look at the trends of most videos, they're gonna be like 20% or less. And they're like, what, what, no one's gonna watch the whole thing? Of course people are gonna watch the whole thing. Like the people that hire you are probably watching the whole thing. <laughs> If you put a brand video, say, on the hero of the website versus a bio video on the attorney bio page, what gets more traction? Definitely the homepage video. Okay. And, and it's especially, you know, it's above the fold and like someone can see it right away, particularly on mobile even. Um, it, I think the best thing you can do, especially when you have a video, like it doesn't have to be one of ours, but just let's say if it's a video that you're proud of that it tells the story of your firm well. If you don't showcase your authenticity in some way, well, then you're putting yourself to a degree to, to a competitive disadvantage. Like if like a lot of times people do business with those that they, you know, we all know the saying, like they know, like, and trust. If they can't connect with you, then the firm becomes more commoditized and they can't tell one firm apart from another. So I find it rare that people hire law firms and it's more common that they hire lawyers. What has this like tremendous growth been like for you? And if we go back, you said you've had crisp 11 years. If we go back 11 years, like, is this what you envisioned? Has it surpassed what you envisioned? Did you have to work on mindset to get here? Or was it just something you had? It's definitely gone well beyond what I had envisioned early on. So in 2012, when I started the company, $500 to my name, I mean, this idea of, I don't know why, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this goal of like, if we could just grow to a million, right? Like a million seems, seems like a lot. Now, post-inflation, five or 10 million is a new million. But at the time I was like, oh, that'd be great. And it'd be great to have a team and it'd be great to have clients and it'd be great to have an office. And you know, I, I just thought all these things would be nice. As it's grown, I definitely think it's exceeded 
my expectations. But having said that, I you know there's this uh, expression that you know the life you live today is 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 the byproduct of who you were three to five years ago, or like the the efforts that you were putting in three to five years ago. So that hasn't really changed. And in fact, I'm kind of excited for the you know for the next five years because I I know a lot of the things that we're working on today and that you know just won't come to fruition for the next two years, three years, and so on. Because you start to think on a longer time horizon, you know, because we made our evolution from like video to marketing to coaching to coaching for firm owners, coaching for teams, and like you start to expand there. I mean, when we were the video company, it, we were just thinking, how do we help law firms grow? And it started out with saying, okay, well, we could just help them differentiate and stand out. And, it, and a lot of it was for firms that did not have the resources to compete on you know, traditional mediums. So we said, all right, well, we can, we can help them on digital. And these were largely you know, smaller firms. Then we said, all right, well, we got the videos. What do you do with them? And let's put them online. Let's put them on the internet. Again, there was a lot of like barriers to entry, but social media, where we talk about like Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn and Instagram, the barrier to entry was much lower there. You could post the content there. The, the, the CPMs were lower at the time. Like, it, you know, so that's where we went. Then our law firm owners were like, okay, so you got the content, you're differentiating. Now, you know, you get the phone ringing, you, you start to do the marketing. How do we answer the phones? Do we have the right people in place? What's the structure of the firm? Like, what's the foundation here? There was no foundation. Because um, I said it the other day, and uh, I'm sure this is going to bother some people, but it's like, if, if for anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you were working, let's say over 60 hours a week, maybe 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week in your law firm, and you believe that what you need is leads, you are a confused individual. Because think about it, you're working 80 hours a week you are exhausted, you are spread thin, and you think, oh, if I could only get more business, somehow I would go from working 80 hours a week to now working 90 hours a week. Anyway, I say this all from the standpoint that I, you know, at the time in 2012, I didn't see us as being like this coaching company. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but as we've grown and as our, you know, client base has expanded, we listen to them and we, you know, they come to us and say, here's something I'm struggling with. And if you see enough people struggling with it, you don't see, a, uh, I think, a good enough solution for an audience or for a sub-segment, we say, okay, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's an area that we can help in. So that's what we'll have more of coming down the pipe as a, kind of the ecosystem expands. Whatever you hear from firms are the most common challenges and pain points. You know, our our vision is like, we want to help them grow. And sometimes that helps them grow through content. And sometimes it helps them grow through marketing. And sometimes it helps them grow through expanding their team and their capacity, um, hiring great people, finding great people, um, having great internal operations, like, you know, developing those people, like allowing themselves to be kind of surrounded with an actual support team. And then it goes beyond that. And then it's like leveraging technology and then making the firm more valuable and being able to put yourself in a position where you can take in external capital and private equity money and still retain ownership of your firm. Like, I mean, there's so many different ways in which a firm can grow and expand. So there's, it's exciting. Is there a point where you would sell? Look, if somebody offered me a billion dollars or something crazy like that, I mean, of course I meet with the team. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, you know, people's like, oh, I'd never do it. You're, if somebody offered you a billion dollars cash, you would never do it. You wouldn't think about but it. But is that what you guys are worth? No, I, not, no. And, but <laughs> here, in, in like, in real world sense, I've thought about this and like, what I mean is that, yes, some insane number that some Saudi prince might offer, sure, right? But it's not from any desire to. Like, I, I have zero desire to sell. And I've thought about this because I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, the goal is always entrepreneurial freedom, right? To be able to spend your time how you want, around the people you want, doing the things that you want to do. I also realized just over the last several years that I really don't need anything. Like I'm not trying to buy some boat. I don't need a bigger house. Like I enjoy the work that we do. Like as long as our, like our daughters are taken care of, I spend every day pretty much the same. And then I'm not ever trying to like now escape from anything or retire. So that sounds very boring to me. 
I like to be challenged. I like for us to be creating new things. Like I enjoy the work that we do. So to me, there's very little upside to selling because number one, I think I'm learning a lot on this journey as we grow and kind of hitting new challenges. And as, as you grow, you become hopefully a more capable leader. And if you sell, you got to start over again. And then what? For money? I don't need money. So what's, what's the point? I think sometimes when people say, oh, I just want to sell, what they really are saying is I just need a break. And I would, I would ask that like somebody, if they're in that mode, that they really can distinguish between the two of like, I need to take some time off because I'm exhausted versus I want to be done with this. And I have something else in mind that I'd rather be doing. A lot of law firms are talking about selling and like changing the name so that it's not like a Morgan and Morgan situation, right? I definitely agree that a law firm should be built in a way that it can be sellable. If something ever happened to you or you got hit by a truck and payroll couldn't even be run or new cases wouldn't come in or cases wouldn't even be moved forward, that is a very dependent uh, practice on you and it's not really worth that much, right? Outside of the case inventory, maybe some lawyers and maybe some chairs and desks, it's not really worth a whole lot. But if you can create a law firm that is self-managing to a degree and is not solely dependent on you, now you have options and your options can be, okay, I'm either, I have somebody in place that I can pass on the practice to, like, you know, some sort of succession plan. You can sell the firm, taking private equity capital. You can either take in the money to grow the firm. So you don't have to give up, you know, more than 50%. You can still retain like control over the firm, or you can just sell the whole thing. And as if you have something else lined up that you want to be doing, you have those options. How can someone sell if it's like their face on every billboard for the past 10 years yeah. or whatever? So one, I think it starts out with your face initially. And, and just because it's your face doesn't mean they're always going to ask for you. Because I think if you market in the right way, you can highlight your the team as a whole, the culture as a whole. Like, I don't think when people call Morgan and Morgan, they expect to, to speak to John. I do. <laughs> How often do you get them? Right? Never, not once. But the other way I look at it is, and, and I'm starting to see more progressive law firms doing this, is that start building the brands of the other people in your firm. Right? Start giving them more platforms. You can show there's other great people here. There's other really capable, talented people that, uh, you know, we just hire excellence. That's that's what it looks like. And this is the, what you can expect in working with our firm. So I think that's another way around it. If you go to our workshops, for example, like we, we've we been featuring people like our COO, Alex, our head of people, Laura. Uh, of course, Jessica's run the workshops for a while. And we're going to be doing more and more of that for, for that very reason. I'm trying to do it from the standpoint that I want people to see the reality and the truth. And it's that these are really, really, really smart, capable people that we have here. And I'm the dumb one. My contribution is relatively small compared to like the day-to-day -day execution that has to get done. I live in future company. I think about this a lot. I think about like where we're going. I start to map these things out. I, I think about it constantly, like 24 seven, Saturday, Sunday, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the day. But the ideas are such a small part of like the actual growth itself, because I mean, you think about, let's say even one of our conferences. Yes, we have this idea, let's do it in a football stadium. You put up the money, you book the speakers, but the execution of that was several hundred people on every single detail of everything from what the catering is like to all the videos that play to every single element of that experience. And I'm on stage for a few hours, but it's like hundreds of people that are making this a reality. It's the same thing like even day to day at Crisp. It's like we have. Uh, team members that are on, on calls with clients that are right now at on-site trainings that are also conducting workshops that are at shoots that are editing videos and like that makes it all i mean it makes me look good but it's not it's not me doing those things on a day-to-day -day basis how much did that conference cost you the one in uh, last november at the stadium eight million no yeah that's crazy it was a million alone for just renting mercedes-benz stadium so like just for them to give that to us for two days it was a million was it worth it yes like return investment wise 
The short answer is yes, but it also depends on how you quantify it. And I don't know if an event like this will ever happen again. I'm not saying this to dissuade anybody. And like, if someone's like, oh yeah, sure. Well, I'm going to do an even bigger one. I think that's awesome. More power to you. Like I will be like rooting for you, right? It, it's, I think that's completely fine. That being said, I would not wish an event like that upon my worst enemy. It was a huge distraction for the team because just filling this venue like all year long, we had to pull people from different departments in the company. Like we were trying to do what we were doing this year now, which is really focusing on like optimization, like hiring for certain key roles, like a lot of infrastructure stuff. All that stuff got pushed to this year, last year, because we had to wipe it and say, we got to fill this stadium. We got to 2000 fairly quickly because the last event had a little over 2000. Um, we had our existing audience, our lists, our base, but then we were like 3000 short. And that whole year went to that next 3000 of getting people who do not attend legal conferences, who have never really been to a legal conference from all parts of the country to like, in, and we, we even expanded outside of the country to like learn about the event, know about the event and want to attend the event. Everybody with a law degree, we tried to get them there. It was a very, very, very aggressive push. Um, like I said, it was, it was a million just for the venue rental, but that did not include anything. I mean, it didn't include you know any of the stage, the AV, obviously no speakers. It didn't include tables, didn't include chairs. We had to bring our own tables and chairs. Um, so everything was scaled up. Now, when you say, hey, was, was it worth it? 100%. On the financial side, we did not lose our ass on this event by any means. It was, uh, we made like, well into the eight figures on it. But the bigger thing, like even if we didn't make any money or even if we lost money, that what it did for the brand was it just made everything easier from that point forward. There's there's no investment we make where we bet the farm, like that we couldn't lose and then it would bring about the downfall of the business. I think that would, you know, but years ago, I was just throw it all back in, right? And if this one doesn't work out, we're done. But it was just me at the time. So it was okay. Like I can live on ramen noodles. What's it like working with your wife? So we're in very different functions of the business. She's much more on the operations side. I'm much more on the kind of the, the, the let's say the, the sales and marketing. I never had any formal training in sales, by the way, or marketing. I was a biology major. So all this stuff I, I learned in a very slow way. So working with Jessica is great in the sense that, and this is not for everyone. So I wouldn't say that everybody should work with their spouse, but if it, if it works well, if there's like, if you have a complimentary skill set, different personality types. One is usually much more patient than the other. It doesn't work well if you have like two impatient people. But I find that at least in our case, all through these years, like Jessica's been in the business really since 2013, 2014. So from the very, very early stages, um, she was in here. We were doing the weekends together. Like we would, you know, we, we'd work late coming into the office. Um, you never have to explain anything to anyone like that, which is which is amazing. Because I think in a lot of relationships, it's like the, with the grind that it takes in certain seasons of the business can be really tough on a partner, a spouse. You know, uh, if, if you have dependents, you have children, like that's not easy to navigate. But when someone's there with you and you're building it together, in those instances, it works really well. We struggle with this a lot where we're at dinner with the three kids and like we just start talking about work. So we don't really talk about business with the kids when when like we're doing like family dinners and stuff. At all. It doesn't slip in there. No, because we just uh we'll, we'll just talk about whatever, you know, whatever they want to talk about or whatever they're doing. When it's just the two of us, I mean, I'm not going to apologize for this. It's all we talk about. What else are we going to talk about? All right. What else is there to talk about? All right. Oh, did you hear about this, you know, this show or this person or whatever. who cares? It's like, here's something we're doing with the navigating in the business. What do you think about this? Or like, where do we need to improve here? Or where am I failing? Or, you know, just, I think it's, it's been great to navigate that in a way it's been our whole world, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. 
And it doesn't feel, I know for some people they're like, oh, don't talk about business because they just don't have that. And, and, I, and I say this respectfully because I, I think everybody's relationship is different. Like they just don't have that commonality or that level of interest where like one person's really vest, you know, vested interested in the business. The other one doesn't even like talking about business. And that can be really problematic. Like I have friends where that's a problem. I come across a lot of entrepreneurs. They basically get a lot of like outside pressure. It's like business is hard enough as it is. I mean, you're, you're doing challenging things, challenging problems, challenging people constantly. And if you're also having the wage wage war at home or someone's giving you a hard time, it's like, oh, I can't believe you're home late again. Or uh, why are you always like talking about work or thinking about work? It's like your problems already you know, weigh a thousand pounds. That's you know, that's just going to add to it and become more challenging. Well, I think building a business is really lonely. Even running a law firm, I think it's a really lonely thing. Yes, yes. Which is probably why you started the coaching in part, because people, like, I feel like business owners and law firm owners feel really alone. Like, they don't know who to go to. Yes, yes. And, and what they find is that generally, like, people local to them, they don't want to share information because they view them as a competitor. I think that that's, in my opinion, I think that's really short-sighted. I think that there's enough business for everyone to go around. I just don't, I don't see the world that way, period. I agree. I don't think it's a zero sum game. I'm a big fan of like kind of the abundance mindset of that. I think there's way more than enough to go around. I mean, you, you think about it, like even if, if someone was to think about it mathematically, you've got 1.3 million law firms, let's say three or 400,000, like actual law firms themselves, 1.3 million lawyers, you look at the percent of, of which are going to be, let's say entrepreneurial in nature, maybe 100,000. I don't know of any company working with 100,000 firms. I mean, there's more than enough out there and there's more graduating from law school every year. So I think there's more than enough opportunity. I mean, it's there. I talk to a ton of my competitors all the time. Yes. Like literally all the time, openly about shit. I don't care. And I am, maybe I'm weird in the sense, but I actually, I root for like competitors, what could be considered competitors. I like seeing people do great things. You don't really have a, comp not the same way that you do things though. You got really lucky. And Tell me about my luck. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. I know you've worked super, super hard. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree luck plays a role, though. But I think... No, I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I'm really not. You were really the first. The first, like, video production company for law firms. Do you know what I mean? Like, to the scale that you did it... Like, if you talk about SEO companies, uh, how many of my competitors do you know? Yeah, I mean, it's you go to a conference, there's like three right next to each other. I know, and we're all friends. It's like- it's Like three booths are like SEO, 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 and it's like, gosh. So I don't envy that by any right. means. So that's what I meant by luck. Like it, you had, I don't even know how to say it. Now I feel like you made me feel bad. No, look, so, okay. No, I'm teasing you. I remember when we started, even on the video front, we, so we were definitely not the first. There was other legal videos, but I think we were among the first that really- took a professional approach to this. And like created a brand and like this whole thing around it. What I meant by luck is like, you didn't come into a space that was already built. You built the space, which in a way I'm sure was harder because nobody was doing it, but it also gave you an advantage. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the goal is always, if you can find ways to differentiate enough to become, I mean, this, this applies to any type of business in law firms, et cetera, to be seen as like a market of one, right? If someone says, I don't want shoes, I want Nikes. 
right? Or I don't want like Bluetooth headphones, I want AirPods, right? I don't want a phone, I want an iPhone, right? If you could do it that way, then you you start to really differentiate and decommoditize. But like I said, I root for any time I see somebody and like it, people, I don't think people would believe this. Uh, it, it's wild. Like you should see it internally because sometimes um, some of our leaders tell me I'm like, I'm twisted. But like I root for them because I'm like, well, they're putting themselves out there and it's like, it's going to make us work harder. It's going to make everybody produce greater, greater products and like, you know, greater services. Like it's going to make things better for for consumers in general. So I think that's that's a wonderful thing. Um, it's hard where like I mean the example I give is like I don't know if you ever play like any any sports video games. No. Um, well, if you like follow a lot of these games, like let's say EA Sports had like if you're familiar with like FIFA, right? Yes. FIFA's the same every year. And FIFA's been the same every year because EA Sports has no competition. Like nobody else had the FIFA license, so they couldn't like create a competing product. So they create this soccer game every year and it's the same one. And they're like, outside of like a roster update, there's like very little changes. And that's, I don't think that's good for an industry because if they had some competition, then like the games would get substantially better every single year. I look at it the same way. It's like when, to an extent, I think we ran into this when we first entered even into the legal industry where um, there was a lot of companies that have been around for a decade or two decades that just not a whole lot of changed. I mean, it's a very traditional industry. The videos at the time were like, if you remember like those videos on against those blue backgrounds, mm -hmm. right? And it was like the same video. You couldn't even tell them apart. It was like just somebody answering FAQs. Um, and that's what it was for, you know, for quite a while before then. And then even on the marketing front, there really wasn't a whole lot of talk or focus around social media. Um, whoever did the SEO lobbying, I want to meet that person because all law firms know what SEO stands for. You know what's so funny? I actually, w I was at a conference last week and I was just like recording live and I was just pulling lawyers and I was like, what does SEO stand for? I thought they were all gonna fuck it up. Not one fucked it up. It's amazing. A lot of the education has been done or like the need exists in their mind of saying, I need this, right? Because I hear about this all the time. I know how important it is. So to an extent, I kind of envied that because when we were talking about even early on with some of the video marketing or differentiation, someone was saying, well, why do I need a $20,000 video, right? Like absolutely not, right? They couldn't wrap their heads around it. Anytime anybody does anything, kind of puts themselves out there, like they're going to face some sort of some sort of criticism. Maybe that's why I root for them because I'm like, I can relate to the feeling that that person is experiencing. Even if whatever they're posting on Facebook, they probably are scared to death. Like they're probably getting all sorts of criticism as a result of, you know, just kind of going down a new path. Do you think you've gotten a lot of criticism? Oh, 100%. And how do you handle that? Uh, so at first, early on, I, I thought there was something wrong. Like, did I like... Did I fail someone? Did I disappoint them? Did I do them dirty? Like I just, I was trying to find like, where did I mess up? Because it, it was initially when I first started getting the criticism, which was back in, uh, it really started to pick up 2017. And I remember then I, I was like, what, what did I do? Like it was 2017 or 2018. And it was like, it was really by people that I thought we were, we had a good relationship. Like these are the people that I would see at conferences. And these are the people that like, we would, we would kind of hang out together. And I was like, I thought we were all helping each other. That was the support. And then I hear like, this person's criticizing this person's criticizing. So my first thought was that, did I do something wrong? Like it, that I'm not aware of, like, did I somehow that screw this person over that I like, did I mess up somewhere? And I, it bothered me. And then eventually I learned that, okay, all it is is just kind of like these criticisms are just disguised as envy. And nobody was criticizing us when, you know, we were kind of like harmless and nobody really knew who we were. We had a tiny client base, nobody cared. And did you ever like confront people or no? I did initially, I did because I, I was genuinely like dumbfounded. I was like, did I do something wrong? And what did they say? So I don't want to give the specific scenario for like this, this specific individual, but the example they gave 
really had nothing to do with what it was that they were upset about, but they like made something up. Like, it, I don't know. They heard from somebody else, something else. I don't know. It, was, it became like this whole telephone thing. In a way, I also realized that like, well, I don't want to be a part of any of this drama, first of all. Um, second of all, it's also important to know where that feedback comes from. So if it's coming from like my team or my clients, then I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is constructive criticism. This is like, we want to grow. We want to have areas for improvement. If, if somebody's dissatisfied with something, I want to learn from that experience and I want to make us better. If we decide to host an event, we give a car away and somebody criticizes and says, well, you know, um, we don't have to give cars away at our events or something. I think, okay, you know, go, you can do whatever you want at your event, right? I mean, that's, that's absolutely fine. But now I actually like it. I think it's helped us in, in so many ways. Uh, it's like the, the whole Deion Sanders thing, make it personal. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You have to almost kind of like manifest an enemy to an extent to I'm the type of person where anytime I get any of that, I use it as fuel to, to some degree. It has nothing even to do with them. I don't care. Does it close you off? It did it close you off? It did initially because I didn't know who I could trust. So because, again, these are people that I thought I was close with. I thought that we were all here to help each other and support each other. And I've realized that that's really not the case. You know, I think it's I think it works well if everybody kind of stays where they're at in that same level. As soon as you start to kind of break out from that and they're like, they try to pull you back in. Let's just say that not everybody has the same commitment level. Not everybody does the same work behind the scenes. Not but I think people can be happy for other people. Oh yeah, oh for sure. And I actually would say there's probably more that are happy than than are than are critical. I think that sometimes we just amplify it. It's, it's, it's no different than, you know, you're driving to work and you're thinking about these two problem, you know, team members in your office and you're like, uh, you know, all you can think about is the two. And you, let's say you have 50 people in your office. You don't think about the 48, you know, that are doing a great job and that love where they work. So I think sometimes those like the negative voices get a little bit amplified. It just comes with the territory. The more success that you achieve, the more criticism you're going to have. I mean, some people some people hate it when you win. Like they absolutely hate it. It bothers them. In fact, um, this is actually odd to me that I think there's some people out there that would sooner see you fail than themselves actually succeed. And I think that's really odd. I'm a competitive person in the sense that I want us to grow. I want us to win. I want things to, us to do things at a high standard. I want us to be the best or strive to be the best. And I enjoy that. I think the business is like the ultimate form of like competition that exists because, you know, it's 24 seven, there's no off season. Um, there's like, there's really no age limit to it either. So it's not like you, you know, like in the NFL, you go three years and then you had to retire. It's like, you can be at the top of your game in your 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond. Um, I, I just, I love it. Like the sport of business, you're solving problems, you're having to navigate things, there's certain different, you know, partnerships. Some things will go your way. Most things will not go your way. I, I think it's incredibly exciting. So that's why, like, if I see someone doing something that is ambitious in some way, whether I agree with it or disagree with it, or whether it helps me or hurts me, um, I respect them for it. Have you thought of going into other spaces besides legal? Yeah. Because like you have a formula. Now you could argue you have a formula, right? Well, I mean, I'll give you the kind of the, the objective business answer. So I, I, get, I get asked this in almost like every every interview that somebody has at our company. Like they'll, they'll always say, hey, are you going to expand beyond legal? And I'm like, well, it's not to say that we couldn't. Um, we can. I'm a big fan of focus. Uh, I would also say that, you know, if we were, could we do what we're doing in another industry or vertical? Sure. I mean, we, we could. I mean, you could produce videos, you could do marketing, you could do coaching, team training and, and, and those things. But um, I find that there's something to be said. You'd have to build a brand in that vertical. You'd have to get known in that vertical. I think we have worked very hard to establish a lot of like credibility and trust, whether it's through the book or the podcast or the conferences and just all, all the content marketing over the years, like the community, et cetera, that we would have to build that again somewhere else. And to me, that would only make sense if 
you know, as a business, we hit a point of just growth and saturation where the growth rate doesn't continue to maintain to meaning that we've saturated enough of the market. There's not enough new business out there that become like a, like almost like a scorpion where it's like, I'm going to go into healthcare and I'm going to go into like all these other, other verticals. We're certainly a growing company, but of the market share that's available, I, th- I still think we have a very, very, very small amount. We have like years and years and years of not like a decade plus to, to go um, that to me, I'd rather keep us focused. And then also, I like the work we do and I like the people that we do it with and I like the problems that they solve. I, I always tell our clients, like the, the lawyers, I'm like, it's, we're not so passionate about you. It's like, we're passionate about the people that you help, right? It's like, who's passionate about lawyers? Like, let's, let's be real. Like, you think people come into our organization and say, I'm so passionate about helping lawyers? Like they- I think lawyers are passionate about themselves. But like to say an outsider, right? Like somebody, you hire someone, they're like, my whole life, I've just been so passionate about helping lawyers succeed. Um, that it has to go one step further. And I, and I think that lawyers solve very important problems in society. I think they help people in need. And I think you can be passionate about the people that they help to allow them to be able to scale their impact and help more people. That's at least our view. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This was great. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for letting me use your studio. I didn't have to set up. Anytime. Thank you to Michael for everything he shared with us today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show.